all comments and observations in this podcast are made in a personal capacity and we're expressing personal views by way of legal commentary. While every effort is made to ensure that the contents of each episode are accurate, none of the contents of any episode of Professionally Embarrassing are intended to be a substitute for legal advice. No liability is accepted for any error or omission within any episode. to Professionally Embarrassing, your fortnightly family law podcast hosted by me, Malika, and me, Maddie. Welcome back to episode five of Professionally Embarrassing and thank you all again for tuning in. We've got all the usual stuff lined up for you this week. We're also doing a Tweet of the Week pupillage special so that we can celebrate and commiserate alike and also give you our thoughts on the process itself, which we fairly recently came out of. So without any further ado, Maddie, let's start off with our usual first segment. What did you see on Bailey? The case I've gone for this week is a judgment from a circuit judge in Bournemouth. It is His Honour Judge Simmons and it is called... BCP and M, failure to comply with directions, colon, family placement. The reason I've chosen it, and actually it was Malvika who told me about it, is it's quite a good example of an area that I'm quite interested in, which is what happens when the local authority don't do what they're told. And I think for practitioners and for law students, it's a really interesting and simple judgment to look at in terms of the court's powers when it comes to the local authority essentially misbehaving. So It concerns a child called M, who is a little boy born on the 8th of February 2021. So he's very young at the time of this judgment, about two and a half months old. It was handed down on the 15th of April. He presented at hospital on the 27th of March with a fractured right femoral shaft and also right distal femoral metaphysial corner fracture, which is a long way of saying he had some broken legs. There were further injuries also discovered when he came to hospital and therefore he is subject to care proceedings and there will be further expert assessment in relation to those injuries. Thankfully, the case doesn't involve too much about his injuries or what happened to him. So we don't need to go into too much harrowing detail. But what the case does concern is interim placement. So what that means is what happens to the baby in the meantime, whilst the parents and potential other family members are being investigated as to their role in these injuries. So the parents accept early doors that they are not able to care for the child at this stage because he's in hospital and they are in what's called the pool of perpetrators, which is it could have been them or someone else who inflicted the injuries. The parents accept that they're in the uh, list of people who need to be investigated. And that list also includes the maternal grandmother and the maternal aunt. On the 1st of April, the matter comes before His Honour Judge Williams in Bournemouth, who made an emergency protection order, and he then listed the matter for directions and for consideration of placement on the 9th of April. And it appears that on the 9th of April, he was given a choice in terms of interim placement. So the parents were suggesting that the baby should be placed in the interim while these investigations are ongoing with the paternal aunt, so that's the father's sister, who's called Miss H throughout the judgment. And the local authority opposes that placement because they say that the paternal aunt could also be on the list of people that need investigating in relation to the injuries and that the 
level of care that the paternal aunt can afford is not um, appropriate for an interim placement. The judge on the 9th of April, so that's His Honour Judge Williams, disagreed with the local authority and said that subject to the practical arrangements, that is exactly how the baby will move to her care and how she'll support the care of the baby, he would be interested in placing the baby with his aunt and the local authority would need to provide more information and make more inquiries in respect of how that placement can be supported. So what financial and um, social work can be implemented to ensure that this placement with the paternal aunt in the short term is successful. The order stated that more inquiries needed to be made and information needed to be given to include a financial summary and assessment of the paternal aunt and allow for further resources to be given. That was the order made by the court to the local authority. When the matter came back before His Honour Judge Simmons on the 15th of April, so this is six days after that, the local authority had essentially completely failed to provide the information that was required by the previous judge. The local authority at that hearing maintained that they don't feel that the aunt is an appropriate person to care for the baby and they don't therefore support placement. They say that for the first reason is that she's on the list of potential people that could be placed into the pool, so the list of people that need to be investigated. And they say that the police inquiries are at an early stage and although she has not had any unsupervised contact since the 14th of March, the position of the aunt and the family are all self-reported and they don't know whether there's anything going on. The judge puts it like this, he says at best, this is a suspicion, a worry, but with no evidential basis. It is a, we have a feeling there is something going on. The judge says to hold that position would mean that in every case where a viable family placement is an option, a local authority could oppose it without any evidential basis. This is a direct violation of both the family and the child's Article 8 rights and has no foundation in law. So it's not going great. The second opposition by the local authority was that they didn't feel that she had the requisite what's called ability to protect. So did she have the requisite ability to manage contact, to safeguard the child from the maternal family and the father who were on this list of people who needed to be investigated? The judge says it like this. I asked counsel for the local authority, frankly, where do I find the evidence for that, that the paternal aunt isn't able to support this placement and manage contact? Counsel accepted there is no evidence for that. If there is no evidence, you cannot rely on upon it. The judge said, indeed, the evidence that I have is that the paternal aunt is more than capable of standing up to her brother. And in fact, the local authority assessment of her was a woman who appeared to be strong, genuine and willing to work with the local authority. He says there is no evidence that the paternal aunt could possibly be on the list of those who caused the injuries and the judge accepts that. The third area that the judge wants to highlight is the fact that the paternal aunt herself had had very little time to think about the ramifications and the effect of the placement on her and her family. The judge says, of course, he accepts that, but there is a caveat to it, and it is this. What support is this aunt going to be given by the state in respect of looking after this child? Because, of course, if the child is with a foster carer, which this local authority are funding, then they, of course, should be providing the normal fostering support, as they must do. Therefore, the judge asks, what support will they put in place to allow the child to be placed with a family member? And he refers back to the order made by His Honour Judge Williams on the 9th of April, where it says that they must file a support plan, including any financial support and the proposed written agreement it would enter into with her. The local authority failed to provide that information. The judge said they had drafted a written agreement, but they'd failed to share it or discuss it with a paternal aunt, who's the person it is about, and they have failed to comply with the paragraph of the order by His Honour Judge Williams. Details of any financial support has not been set out. They could not tell me, even now, 
what support would be given, what the process would be, or indeed what the emergency funding situation is. They do not know what startup items she would need. They therefore have not done what the learned judge required. And then the judge goes into an area of consideration in terms of how important it is for children to be kept with their family. So he emphasizes in the case of Riel, which is a seminal judgment about interim care orders, that an interim care order is intended to ensure that the child is kept safe in the period prior to the court's full consideration of the local authority's care application. Children, if at all possible, and by that I mean when it is safe and in their welfare to do so, should be raised within their family, their birth family. Removing children to a foster carer should always be seen as a draconian and last resort. Many times this court is told, well, we do not know family members, rather than the child cannot be placed with these family members because of XYZ concerns. We know that the public law working group reform very much looks at local authorities working more with families and with the real emphasis that children, if at all possible, should be with the family, i.e. referring back to what has been, in my judgment, the law for many years. So essentially, the judge is saying to the local authority, you're not doing nearly enough to ensure that this child, while he's going through this very difficult period of care proceedings, is placed with a birth family member. And in fact, they patently failed to do anything at all to ensure that by not filing the requisite information with the court. The judge says, I appreciate all I have in respect of the aunt is an interim assessment, but what I have from that interim assessment tells me that this is a placement that would and could work. The local authority have no concerns with regard to her that I can see. As I have said, the report tells me she has got two children that appear on my reading to be well cared for. She has had no involvement in respect of herself to the police or the local authority. In my judgment, the evidence is that on both occasions, she acted appropriately in terms of uh, managing the behaviour of the birth father. She acted protectively and used the protective services available. Secondly, when her brother misbehaved, came home drunk and would not behave, she called the police on him, showing she is able to do that, stand up and take appropriate action. It's also noted that her home was noted as immaculate in the assessment. Therefore, the judge says there is no evidence in respect of her possibly being on the list of those who need to be investigated and no evidence in the second point with regard to dynamics and her ability to manage the father. Indeed, in my judgment, the evidence is all to the contrary. I am therefore very clear that M, the baby, should be placed with his aunt and that he should be placed there as a matter of urgency. However, what the judge says is that he can't endorse that placement at this exact time in this hearing because the local authority have still failed to share the information that's required in relation to financial arrangements and setting up grants and allowing the aunt to have all the things she needs to support the baby. And in fact, the aunt herself sent an email to the court detailing that she doesn't understand what fostering payments or set up costs, nursery care, existing childcare arrangements will be available. And she needs that information in order to agree to the placement. So the local authority are not only not filing the requisite information, but the aunt is now saying that she needs that information in order to agree the placement. So the placement's now becoming questioned by the adult because she doesn't have the requisite information. The judge says, by failing to comply with the court order to file that information, failing to provide her with the basic information necessary and failing to engage with her to make the necessary decisions, they have, in reality, used their corporate might to scupper the placement and the possibility of that today. That cannot be acceptable. So it's quite a clear judgment by His Honour Judge Simmons that this tack of the local authorities of not supplying the information that's required in order to endorse the placement is clearly problematic and should not be happening. And what the judge says is that it's not acceptable on any reading for a local authority to try and change the court's assessment of the risk and assessment of the placement by not supplying the requisite information to allow that placement to happen. What he says at the very end is, 
I'm going therefore to require the local authority to set out and comply fully with the order of His Honour Judge Williams. I'm going to bring this matter back for an urgent hearing next week and I'm going to require a senior person from the local authority to attend and explain why the order wasn't complied with, what any issues that arise from that are and how we can ensure this does not happen again in the future. He also put the local authority on notice for costs. Um, that means whether they should have to pay the cost of the hearing today because they failed to comply with the order. And the reason I think this is an interesting case is, as I said, it raises an area that I find really interesting, which is the extent to which the court is able to dictate things to the local authority. There's a seminal case called Reed which came out in 2018, which was about how much power the court has to tell the local authority how its care plan should be and what it, what it can offer and what it can do. And what that case says, which is similar to this one, is that a local authority cannot refuse to provide lawful and reasonable services that are necessary to support the court's decision, so any financial or social services available should be made available, and that that refusal by the local authority to provide those services is an unlawful breach of the family's rights. And I think that judgment from Reedy is condensed quite nicely in this judgment. We see it happening quite a lot. Um, local authorities attempting to circumnavigate decisions of the court by failing to provide appropriate resources, and this judgment is an example of that not being an effective tool for the local authority. They should not be doing that. It is the court's job to assess risk and welfare. And when the court has done that and has assessed a placement as suitable or assessed a person as a suitable carer, the local authority are under an obligation to ensure that resources are provided to meet that placement. And in fact, they emphasize as well in this judgment that a child being with its family member while in an interim placement, while proceedings are ongoing to find out what's happened to the baby, can only serve to enforce the child's welfare and can be better for the child than obviously being in a local authority placement when there are local authority resources available to keep the child at least at home with a birth family member. So it's quite a nice judgment, it's quite short, it's only about 30 paragraphs and the paragraphs are short and it condenses very well that whole concept of how much the court can push the local authority. Um, and if you, if you get a chance to read it, I would recommend because it is really helpful in understanding a, why a placement with a birth family member is important, and B, the extent to which the local authority have to comply with what the judge has said is the real correct placement for this child. Thoughts? Yeah, a few things come to mind about that case. I think it's helpful for the judge to haul this local authority over the coals, because you can imagine if it had been a lay party, a parent who had failed to comply with directions, the court would have had very little patience for any of that and I think sometimes local authorities can coast on the fact that they're local authorities and that they're professionals and they will be respected and there's an imbalance of power I think in the way that they are treated or and indeed the children's guardian is treated versus how the parents are treated so I think making it very clear to the local authority that you are a party to these proceedings the court directs what you do and you comply with it there are no ifs or buts so that's helpful just to, to set that out and make that expectation clear. I also think the approach of this local authority in terms of the paternal aunt is a classic example of what I like to call defensive social work rather than sensible social work. And, you know, this idea that there's no evidence that the paternal aunt was on the list of possible perpetrators albeit that that is all self-reported information and the local authorities being so cautious it's a very post baby p 
approach in that local authorities, social workers, their managers, they've just all become increasingly wary and increasingly risk averse, understandably. Understandably, of course, they have to be aware of risk. Of course, they have to prevent anything like baby pee happening ever again. But it's not just about identifying risks. It's about assessing that risk. And anecdotally, I don't know if this is your experience as well, Maddie, I think there is a concern that social workers aren't assessing risks. They're just saying, oh, these are possible issues that could arise that might cause a risk of harm, but they're not assessing how probable it is that that risk is actually going to cause that harm. And I think good social work is being undermined by a culture of fear, a fear of making the wrong decision, fear of something happening to this child, fear of a requires improvement Ofsted rating, fear of having a damning judgment published like the one that we talked about last episode. So that's really concerning because there is a balance to be struck between being cautious and being sensible. And it is a difficult balance to strike. I would never be able to be a social worker. I just think they're the world's punching bag. No decision that they make is ever going to please someone. So yeah, that's just a, a difficult tension there that I wanted to flag up. And I also think that it's a good reminder that the court acts on evidence and not on suspicion or speculation. And again, I don't know if this is your experience, Maddie, I do find that increasingly local authorities are pleading their cases in unacceptably vague terms and just saying, well, there's the risk of X, Y, Z, but the local authority, the burden of proof is on them to discharge if they are inviting the court to make findings and the burden doesn't shift from them. And they have to back up what they're saying with hard evidence, not just perhaps this could maybe probably possibly happen. Yeah, certainly. And I think the problem with local authorities when they come to court to make applications is that they often feel because they're the ones on the ground, they're the ones with the relationship with the family ostensibly, they're the ones doing the work that they know better than the court. And this is just a good example of if you're issuing proceedings, it is the bottom line is with the court, they make the final decision. And the local authority have to respect that decision as both an analysis of risk and an analysis of welfare in terms of placement. It's not open to the local authority to disregard what the court has said in terms of those matters. They have to do what the court has said. And that's not, if it goes wrong, then of course the responsibility is with the court as well, as we've seen in lots of cases. But the local authority has to be clear when they are in proceedings that that is where the buck stops with the court, not with them. So it's not open to them to try and get around or circumnavigate the court's orders by doing other things or by not doing enough things. That's just something that they should they should be very fiercely warned against. I also think the, the judgment is quite good because it makes reference to a case called ReW, which came out in 2013, in re- reference to the attitude that some local authorities have generally towards court orders. So in ReW, the then president said this, I refer to the slapdash, lackadaisical, and on occasions almost contumelious attitude, which still far too frequently characterizes the response to orders made by family courts. There is simply no excuse for this. Orders must be obeyed and complied with to the letter and on time. Too often they are not. They are not preferences, requests, or mere indications. They are orders. And I think that's a good quote to have in your back pocket if ever you're in hauled in for a non-compliance hearing. It's not a suggestion, it's not a deadline or a goal, it is an order, you do it, and that is what happens. And if it doesn't happen, then you're in breach and you have to answer for that. And I think a lot of the time, especially at the family court, because of the procedures that we use and and the slightly more relaxed procedures that we have rightly, 
people can forget that court orders are still court orders. What uh, what have you got for me this week? My case this week, it's it's a very maddy case because it doesn't have an interesting legal point. It's just bonkers. And it's the judgment of Her Honour Judge Matthews QC in D, brackets care orders, final hearing. And it's a 2020 case. It was handed down in November 2020. But I think it was only published on Bailey recently because I only saw people tweeting and commenting about it recently. So it's a judgment in a final hearing in a case about two kids. SM who's five and NM who's seven and the parents had separated in 2016. Father said that mother refused to attend mediation and didn't promote contact between him and the kids. That wasn't denied by mother so that may well have been the case. Care proceedings were issued and when they were issued the kids were living with their mum. There's not that much detail in the judgment about the specific concerns that led up to the issue of care proceedings, but there's reference in the judgment to mother refusing to present the children for medical investigation, isolating the children from professional agencies and family members and the children not attending school. This is a really, really sad case. Like I said, it's not a particularly novel legal point. It's just an interesting read because of the absolutely catastrophic approach by the mother in this case to the proceedings and I don't think I have read another case which shows a parent self-sabotage in care proceedings as acutely as this judgment. Mother basically from the issue of care proceedings just refused to engage with the court, with the local authority or with the children's guardian. The judge describes her as intelligent and resourceful and in care proceedings, there is non-merits, non-means tested legal aid available, which makes sense. If a state is intervening in a family and there's a prospect of a child being removed or, or some other sort of serious intervention, then parents should have access to legal representation. But despite that, mother doesn't access the legal aid. And the judge says the likely reason is, quote, she prefers to pilot her own case in her own way rather than be given advice which she does not value. The judge says that her attempts to encourage mother to get legal representation was interpreted by mother as harassment. And mother just kept focusing on all of the wrong things. The judge writes in the judgment about how obsessed she is with the local authority having initiated proceedings in the first place. She kept saying it was unlawful, it was unlawful. She kept trying to get the proceedings dismissed to have them declared null and void. She didn't accept any of the decisions of the court, challenged the jurisdiction of the court, and just kept recycling the same arguments over and over again at every hearing. And in doing that, of course, she didn't address any of the actual issues, i.e. where should these children go, what's in their best interest, because she just kept fixating on the unlawfulness of the proceedings. So in December 2019, a mother's contact with the children was suspended because of her problematic behaviour during contact, which included snatching the children from contact and the police having to be called. The judge says there was the hope that the contact would then resume in the new year in 2020, but mother just refused to speak to the local authority, to the social worker. The judge tried to plead with her to get her to work with them, and she said, no, I'm not going to work with liars. The judge provided a written ruling in respect of mother's application for the proceedings to be declared null and void with a view to, well, this decision has now been made, maybe mother will now reconsider her position. That didn't happen. The children's guardian tried to mediate. That didn't get them anywhere either, which meant that the mother since December 2019 hadn't had any contact with these children and basically ignored them until 
shortly before the judgment was handed down in November 2020. So the judgment says that she didn't send them anything for Christmas, their birthdays in February and September. She didn't ask after them to the local authority, to the guardian or to the court. She did send some letters to the children's foster carers address, but the judge suspects that part of that is likely to have been a message to the foster carers that she knows where they're living. She approached the school alleging kidnap. She did all these things, but didn't actually try and engage in any contact with these poor children who probably were wondering where on earth their mother was. Some of the other behaviours by mother during the course of proceedings, she wrote to the foster carers, sending them a letter before action about an alleged suit for defamation, which then led to the court making an injunction when the LA returned the matter to them. She snatched the children from supervised contact, like I said. She suggested to the children in supervised contact that they shouldn't take any of the medication that's given to them in placement or eat any of the food there, and she encouraged them to run away. She attempted to have the Guardian removed on a number of occasions. She made two complaints to the Judicial Conduct Authority about the judge, which weren't upheld. She complained to the SRA about officers at the local authority. She attempted to prosecute the local authority in the magistrate's court for child abduction, and so on and so forth. The local authority's final care plan coming up to the final hearing then was for the children to live with their father under care orders. So the care order would allow them to share parental responsibility. And the reasoning for that is not because they were concerned about father's care, but because of the possible risk to the placement by mother in the future, given that she seems to have form for being disruptive, to say the least. The local authority wanted to offer support effectively and keep an eye on that placement if that was the order that the court made. Their position was supported by the Guardian. The final hearing was listed for four days. It was then reduced to two days at the IRH because mother said she didn't need to cross-examine any of the local authority witnesses or the Guardian and indeed didn't want to give evidence herself because the only witness that she wanted to call was the judge. Mother throughout these proceedings had persistently alleged that the judge was colluding with the local authority. She seemed to have fixated on this idea that the judge had been privy to information that she hadn't seen or some other information outside what was in the court bundle. In July, the judge had told her, uh, no, I won't be giving evidence. Mother asked the judge to recuse herself as well as two other circuit judges. Obviously, the judge said no. And at the IRH, the judge explained again that she's not a witness and has no evidence to give. Despite that, at the final hearing, mother turned up and maintained that the judge would be the first witness, which the judge, of course, said was not appropriate. She kept saying, I want to cross-examine the judge, so the judge had to proceed on the basis that she didn't have any cross-examination for father, the social worker, or the guardian, and invited the parties to make submissions. She even took the step quote, out of an abundance of fairness to allow mother to go last. So as you know, Maddie, um, the local authority would usually go first, then each parent and then the children's guardian usually finishes um, submissions. But mother was allowed to go last. What the judge says is, I was at pains to ask her to focus on the welfare outcome for the children, checking whether she understood that the local authority were asking me to place the children in father's care and authorise the local authority to refuse to promote direct contact between her and the children. I explained simply that the court was focusing on where the children should live and who they should have contact with. Mother said she was not ready to proceed. I offered her time, but she said this would not be enough, and she said she required to think about it overnight. Again, out of an abundance of fairness, I agreed to the overnight adjournment, even though the case could have effectively concluded yesterday. 
I expressed my concern that mother had not focused on the real issues thus far and would be unlikely to do so, simply to take the opportunity to raise other points which she considered to be of procedural unfairness. Sadly, but unsurprisingly, mother then produced a document overnight which didn't focus on any of the issues she needed to focus on. It, again, it was just about the nature of the proceedings, the inception of the proceedings, cross-examining the judge, questions about whether the judge was a qualified lawyer, how long they'd been a lawyer for, and so on and so forth. So we ended up in a position at the conclusion of submissions at the final hearing where mother hadn't actually dealt with any of the issues, including the proposed plan to place the children with father. And in fact, she hadn't actually challenged father's parenting at all. She was just fixated on the unlawfulness of the proceedings. So the judge said, quote, and this is a very, very damning paragraph, in my judgment, mother is devious and manipulative, and even in the experience of this court has shown an ingenuity which at times has been mendacious in her desperate attempts to secure the return of the children. She does not adhere to norms of behaviour, and I would not be surprised at any new step that she may take. She has no conscience about wasting the time of professionals, the court, or in respect of upsetting the children. She has caused the police to be called at the time of removal sanctioned by Recorder O, when she refused to state where the children were, which necessitated the making of a recovery order. She had no thought for the upset caused to the children by the police having to be called. All is sacrificed in pursuit of her goal. She prioritizes her own needs to win over the emotional needs of the children. I agree that father needs maximum support and I do not see the need for care orders coming to an end in any short period. The judge also makes a number of other very damning findings about mother, including that she is unlikely to engage in the future with any medical professional in relation to the assessment or treatment of the children. She's unlikely to engage with any social work or educational professional. She's unlikely to comply with court orders or child protection plans in the future. So it's not possible, sadly, to place the children in their care with a statutory order because she wouldn't cooperate and that she's likely to prioritize her challenges to professional advice and or support in relation to the children in the future, unless it accords with her own opinions. I'm just very quickly summarizing each of those findings. They are actually more lengthy and detailed. Please read the judgment in full. So unsurprisingly, the court sanctioned the local authority's care plan and placed the children with the father under care orders. The local authority also sought an order under section 34, subsection four of the Children Act, permitting them to refuse to promote direct contact with mother. The judge made that order given that mother simply was not prepared to agree to any terms of direct contact with the local authority. You know, the usual sort of things like don't upset the children during direct contact. She is permitted to send indirect contact through the social worker, but the social worker has to filter out anything inappropriate. So that's that very, very sad case. And what I have to say about it is the first thing any advocate representing a parent in care proceedings always says to their client is please, 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 for the love of God, cooperate with the local authority. Of course, that's not to say don't hold the local authority to account if they've failed in doing something that they should have done, but work with them, take on board their concerns, be reflective, see where they may have a point, try and understand how these children have ended up in care proceedings and don't be defensive. And some parents take that as a rallying cry and do precisely that and prove themselves to the local authority and say, yes, we can do this. And their children are the ones who return to them. And some parents don't. And this is a really, really extreme example of the parents who don't. 
And the sad thing is that this drama is just going to carry on, isn't it? Because the judge even says in the judgment, your mother's likely to appeal this judgment, which she probably will. There are going to be looked after children reviews, which mother will be invited to. Presumably this behavior will continue her challenging the local authorities' powers, her challenging the orders which have been made. The children are at risk of mother undermining the placement, approaching them directly, approaching their father, doing the sorts of things that she had done to try and undermine their placement in foster care. It's really sad to think that this isn't going to be the end of it for these children. There is likely going to be further disruption by this mother. And it's an incredibly sad case. Yeah, it's enormously sad. I think also an interesting element of it that struck me when I read it was that mother had had almost no contact before this judgment. She hadn't actually contacted the children, sent them any letters, sent them any cards, gifts at Christmas, anything like that for quite a significant amount of time by the time this judgment came before the judge. So there's a really difficult element in this, which is you can understand defensive parenting and you can understand the, the extreme responses by parents when their children are removed from them, of course, it's the most natural response in the world. But this appears to be a case where not only is there a very extreme response, but there's no grounding in wanting to maintain a relationship with the children. There's no interest in actually speaking, seeing or communicating with the children. And that's what makes it slightly odd. And I'm sure there's a lot going on beneath the surface for this family that will be difficult and will continue to be difficult. But it's just very striking that it's almost not rooted in wanting to see the children. It's just rooted in this absolute rejection of authority, which is really, really sad because the children undoubtedly love their mom and are used to seeing their mom and miss their mom. And that entire part of their life has just been totally undermined. And it's it's really, really sad, I think. And I wish that father and those children all of the best. And I just think it's such a, I don't know whether it's perhaps an extreme reaction to being subject to care proceedings, which of course is one of the most difficult things I can imagine, or whether it's something else. But it either way, it just seems so sad that these children aren't even being contacted by their mum. Their mum's sort of given up on them and the process. Um, and I think that's what's really sad. So can only hope that in the future there's a turning point for the interests of these kids so that they can see their mum. Yeah, the judge refers several times in the judgment to hoping that the mum stops prioritising her principles over the children and over the children's emotional needs, because you're absolutely right. Whenever we're representing parents, half the fight is about contact during the course of the proceedings. How can we get the most contact? How can contact be as productive as it can possibly be? Because the contact is the basis often for further assessment when the children are not in their parents' care. So it seems utterly bizarre to have a parent who isn't interested in contact at all and indeed has a judge quote using the word pleading with her to work with professionals so that the contact can resume. I really, really feel for those poor children who have been raised by this mother as their primary carer for the last four years. And it must have been a real shock to their system for that to go to having no contact with her at all. A point that I wanted to flag up, which was raised by my colleague, Alice Twait, who's on the Transparency Project core group with me, is that there is reference to a fact finding in the judgment. And like I said, there's not a lot of detail about the sorts of concerns in this case. And unfortunately, we weren't able to find the fact finding judgment or a bit more detail about what precisely was going on with this family. This judgment very much focused on mother's behavior throughout proceedings and why that was completely unhelpful to her position. And I do think that that context is important to understand 
whether mother was coming from a place where her concerns were understandable or whether this really was completely irrational behavior. I think, and it was referred to, I think by Alice as the antithesis of transparency, to not know the entire context surrounding this case and just this selective bit about mother. So I do think it would have been helpful to have that fact find judgment as well. Yeah, absolutely. So book, podcast, talk, recommendations this week before we move on to our pupillage special yeah so i listened today it was today's episode of bbc women's hour and it's a series called second chances and today was the fourth in the series and it's hosted by a dj and presenter called millie chows at millie underscore on underscore air details will be in the show notes as per usual so millie is in long-term recovery from addiction and she became a mother last year and the description to this episode says millie feels she was given lots of chances to change but having a baby after getting into recovery made her realize that other mothers aren't getting the help they need or that they just aren't able to take it when it's offered. I haven't listened to the other episodes in the series and I don't really listen to Women's Hour. So this was my first exposure to Second Chances. And I thought it was so moving and so nuanced in its exploration of the issue. So at the very beginning, Millie picks up on one of, I think the big tensions of child protection that is wanting to keep children safe from parents who have caused them harm, but also knowing that those parents likely are a product of their environments and are part of probably and often a, a generational cycle of neglect or care which hasn't been broken. And Millie picks up on that right at the beginning of this segment and she refers to a tweet that she received after the first in the series where someone contacted her and said, I have a one-year-old grandson born to addicted parents and removed. When he was born, his urine tested positive for crack cocaine. These women should be prevented from getting pregnant in the first place. I have no sympathy. Then she also refers to an email from a social worker of 37 years who comes at it from the opposite angle, which is, my work has brought me into contact with increasing numbers of parents who have never had a chance. Very few parents set out to harm their children. So in this episode, Millie talks to a woman called B, not her real name, who has had seven children and five of those children were placed in the care of family members due to B having been in a domestically abusive relationship with her then partner and also because she was struggling with addiction, which started off with weed and pills and then escalated to crack. B says that she was asked to go into a mother and baby foster placement or a residential unit, and she was asked not to communicate with the abusive father of the children and to do domestic abuse courses. But sadly, she says she wasn't ready to take up that support. She had her first child at 18, and in what I think is real insight into how she got to where she is, she said that she had experienced a lot of abuse herself, and that had painted a picture to her of what life should be like, which of course is, is not what healthy life should be like. And when she's pushed by Millie on why she continued to have children as her previous children had been removed, she says that all of this tapped into a core belief of quote, I'm not good enough. And she says, I wanted to get love from having a child and that she wanted to prove each time that she had a child that she could do what she was being asked to do. So again, really honest, self-aware reflection from her of why she kept having children, despite the trauma of having the previous children removed. Eventually, the abusive relationship of nearly 10 years ended when there was a very serious incident of domestic abuse 
when her then partner hung her over the balcony and caused internal bleeding. She then very sadly entered another abusive relationship and we know that that's not unusual at all to be in a pattern of abusive relationships if you've normalized that as something that's healthy in a relationship and what you've come to expect. She was then placed in a refuge and at that stage she was offered by the social worker an opportunity to engage with an FDAC. So for non-family lawyers, an FDAC, Family Drug and Alcohol Court, is a problem-solving court. It's very different to normal courts that we have in care proceedings. It's a court which works with parents. It's not adversarial in the same way. It works with parents struggling with substance misuse. It tailors work to be done with them. They have a key worker, regular drug testing, and usually there's a judge who remains from beginning to end. So there's judicial continuity, which is something of a pipe dream in normal care proceedings. There is a very good FDAC episode in Joshua Rosenberg's Law and Action podcast series from the 5th of March 2019 for anyone who wants a bit more background about what an FDAC does. B describes having been met with a lot of compassion during the FDAC process, and she contrasted it with her experience of care proceedings, which she said, well, she had a lawyer speaking for her. There was no emotion. She didn't get to say what she wanted to say. It was all about what sounded right, which I think is a really interesting view from a parent for a lawyer to hear, because sometimes I do think we lose sight of what the experience is like for our clients. We're so used to going in and out of court day after day. And precisely that, trying to say what sounds good, trying to paint a picture to the court that will be most beneficial to our client, that we forget what it's like for them on the ground, that they might feel like their voices are not being heard. B's final hearing was in October 2020. Very happily, her daughter returned to her care a month later, and she has a little boy in her care too, and they're subject to a supervision order. And she's been off substances for 20 months. So it has a happy ending. Obviously, a lot of work and a lot of self-reflection went into that from B. I think for a lot of people, having listened to that episode, they would have taken the view of the grandparent that I quoted earlier, that why were they even allowed to have more children? They should be ashamed of themselves. They just kept doing it. They didn't learn their lesson, so on and so forth. It's obviously so much more nuanced than that. And that's what I thought was so interesting about this episode, because you hear from a parent about why they ended up in that cycle, about what was going through their minds, about why they were unable to take up support. Because we often find that we have clients where we just want to bang their heads against a brick wall and go, you've got the options available to you, just take them up. And it's so easy for us to say as lawyers, but we can't put ourselves in our clients' shoes and understand that those decisions are not easy to make. They often are breaking out of cycles, which are very, very difficult to break. And to just say, well, you just have to do A, B and C and things will be fine is so reductive because that's not their lived reality. Yeah, I mean, I think, honestly, this conversation is probably one of the reasons why I became a family lawyer. The cycle that you see in family courts of women and it's always women men are never ever told off for having multiple children ever it's always women and the cycle that you see of women having multiple children them being removed the same thing happening the same concerns being raised children being removed again is one of the most heartbreaking things I can possibly imagine and it is very clear I think why that happens as you say it's inherited trauma it's inherited abuse it's generational poverty lack of resources, all kinds of things that should and can be addressed very easily by any sympathetic government. But also it's grief. I mean, if you lose a baby at a young age, you are grieving for that baby. And having another baby probably makes you feel a bit better. 
And I can totally understand that more than anything else that we do. I can totally understand why women have multiple babies when they've had removals, especially of young babies. It is one of the most visceral bonding processes is mother and newborn. That's why we have all the law around interim removal of newborns and things like that. It's so important for mothers, particularly, that's not to be reductive about it, that's just biologically the truth, that it's particularly important for mothers to be present with their newborn babies. If you have a baby removed from you at that age that you that you then never see or rarely see, you are grieving and you go through a process of, of deep, deep trauma. It's one of the one of the worst things, as I said, I can imagine. So it makes perfect sense to me why these women would continue to have children. And the idea that that is somehow to be judged and punished or prevented, I think is absolutely deplorable. The idea that it could be faced with something like sterilization or preventing people from having children is just the most deplorable thing I can imagine. I don't want to ever live in a society that would contemplate doing that. I know we talk a lot, well, we have talked a lot in the past about non-traditional models and the fact that people who have babies in a, in a natural way without the intervention of the state are not policed. I just want to emphasize, rightly so, it should be that way for both traditional and non-traditional parents. You should be able to have a baby whenever you want, and that should never be something that should be policed. And as I say, it disproportionately affects women. Men are never talked to about how many children they have and how many partners they've had and how many babies they've fathered. It is always a discussion around women and the choices that they make. And it somehow becomes this incredibly gendered, discriminatory discussion about women not doing enough for their babies and being bad mothers. And it's just disgusting. Having said that, there are effective means of breaking this cycle and of allowing women to understand and move forward from the trauma that they've had, particularly the grief of having multiple children removed. And I think, like you've highlighted, FDAC is a really effective way of doing that if addiction is involved. There's also very good kind of grief support groups and removal groups for parents who've had children removed. And I know that I've spoken to women who've had multiple children removed who say that you know they don't go away they're still your children and they st and it must be emphasized to these women that just because you're only caring for say two children doesn't mean you haven't had more than that and that you don't have children existing in the world and I think keeping them as as alive in the minds of their mothers and fathers as possible is really really important because sometimes I think the legal system is very quick because we don't intervene after the care proceedings have finished unless something else has gone wrong these parents are left by themselves to consider the enormity of what's happened to them and keeping children as alive as possible and especially in new care proceedings referencing siblings and things like that are really important and there's small changes that can be made that would allow for parents to feel that they are not a being judged by anyone for for that but b that they are parents of real children who they have real connections with and I think that's really important as practitioners to remember and I think the point you made about lawyers kind of coming in and doing the best they can to make things sound good and not really listening or not really communicating effectively is really one one to take home from this because I would be very interested in exploring that with myself within my own practice and also with other people about what we can do to make our clients feel more understood and listened to in the process and particularly social workers guardians every professional judges who are involved in this process I think need slightly more sensitivity around this issue because it's not it is common it's not rare and it's something that we really should consider at every stage that these are real children who do exist and have had impacts on their parents lives and there may be siblings of the subject child and things like that that need to be considered sensitively so it does really make me quite passionate this whole thing I think it's devastating and I think it's so understandable I mean that the person who wrote that tweet should be ashamed of themselves because you can't imagine how difficult it must be, especially if you make a mistake, if you have a child young, 
at a time when you're unstable and then your first child goes and then you immediately want to fill the void with the second child and then you enter this cycle it's very easy to enter and very difficult to leave so I think a little bit of compassion from people um, is very very important. I think the point you make about aftercare is an interesting one there is none you know the social worker who is involved in care proceedings is the child's social worker not the family's social worker those parents drop off the radar once the child is removed presumably unless they're in long-term foster care and they'll involve the parents in decisions about what the processes are when the children are in care but by and large the local authority does not have the same level of interest and involvement with the parents and I can't think of much more that's as traumatic as losing a child and yet there are no systems in place to check up on parents to see if they're doing all right to prevent this from happening again to make sure that they're able to process that experience healthily and not to fall upon unhealthy coping mechanisms because that's inevitably what is going to happen may well be that women are having multiple children because they haven't had a chance to process that trauma and the only way that they can self-soothe in a way is to have another child to fill that void as you said so it's something for local authorities to think about it's something for the state to think about how do we break the cycle rather than reacting to the consequences of the cycle yes and again i think it's a discussion that we keep having on this podcast is we as family lawyers have to look at ourselves in the context of a greater society we are serving a particular function but we don't operate in isolation the reason that these parents come before us and leave the system are for various other ingrained societal or sometimes generational factors that the legal system is doing very little to help and we know we can because of things like FDAC and certain other measures that are being introduced. So we know we have the capacity and the resources to help people who we see in court. And that has to be the priority moving forward because so much of family law is societal and community-based and needs other systems of support outside of the legal system. We don't operate in isolation. We have to learn to look more broadly. And social workers are a huge part of that, as are guardians and as our independent bodies who are there to assist as you say the parents rather than the children because every time we're in court all we're talking about is what's best for the child and sometimes that that does mean that they have to be separated but there's still a parent at the end of that who is probably heartbroken well undoubtedly heartbroken and will need some support and that doesn't mean that we all just go away after that decision has been made as you say before I let you do your recommendations, Maddie, there's just one more thing I wanted to flag up, which is a talk recommendation. Full disclosure, I helped organise the talk, but it's still going to be great, I promise. Women in Family Law are creating a new series called Welfare Wednesdays on the last Wednesday of every month. It's something I feel really strongly about. The reason we called it Welfare Wednesdays is because I'm absolutely sick to the back teeth of the term well-being and how diluted and watered down it has become. So the intention of it is to dive into the real hard-hitting issues that are affecting our collective mental health as women in family law. And the first session has been deliberately timed given it was pupillage off a day last week and it's on overcoming rejection and building resilience. And we're going to be hearing from my friend Rona Scullion, who's a pupil at Central Chambers, the wonderful Hannah Markham QC, who is the chair of Women in Family Law, and also the wonderful Tia Hussein, who's a solicitor at Crane and Staples. And they're going to be talking about their own experiences of overcoming rejection. Rona went through multiple cycles of 
applying for pupillage before she did eventually get pupillage and she's been very open about the impact of that on her mental health over a prolonged period of time. Hannah did not get silk on her first time applying so she's going to be talking about how rejection is something that you have to encounter throughout your career not just when you're junior and trying to get to the profession in the first place so that's going to be a really really interesting event it's going to be at 8 p.m which is a new time we're trialing because we got some feedback on previous events that parents might struggle to make our 6 p.m time slot because it's bed bath dinner so hopefully 8 p.m is a good time for everyone but please do come along Maddie and I know how difficult it is to overcome the rejection, particularly of applying for pupillage. We had it much easier than many others have had it. We are fully aware of that because we only applied in one cycle, but we did still face rejection. Maddie's always very open about the fact that she got two reserve offers um, and had to wait until the end of pupillage offer day before that turned into an offer. And I got one offer, but I was rejected or a reserve everywhere else and no matter how successful you might be at the end of the process I think more than likely everyone has just gone through the ringer trying to get pupillage in the first place so you really do have our sympathies we remember how difficult the process was that event is intended to be a safe space for people applying for pupillage people applying for training contracts to moan to vent to scream to shout and it won't go anywhere so please do join us 26th of May at 8pm. You can register on Eventbrite and the link will be in the show notes. I will be there, buddy. Just briefly, I just wanted to raise this before we move on to our tweet stuff. I have finally ordered and will be reading for anyone who's as interested in new form modern families as me. The book Modern Families, Parents and Children in New Family Forms, which is by Susan Gollenbach, who is a professor at Cambridge. And it is basically the seminal work on whether children who are born to non-traditional families, and by non-traditional, I mean gay, lesbian, in vitro fertilization, egg donation, sperm donation, embryo donation, and surrogate families, and whether that makes a difference to the psychological profile and the things that we naturally consider as beneficial for the child. And it's on its way. I've already read some of it because it's available online, some of it, and it's really really interesting and I really recommend anyone who's particularly interested in the growing number of new form families that we currently are experiencing both in and outside of the of the family legal system and the psychological impact and the kind of nature nurture debate that that entails it's really 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 well written and it touches on so many things that I didn't think about before and I think it mentions in the very beginning that things like step-parent families, so 40% of all marriages in the UK at the moment are remarriages of one or both partners, which is a huge number, and approximately 10% of children in the USA live with a step-parent, so the UK is clearly a bit of a hub for step-parent families, it's very common, and that's an area that's very often overlooked, both in the legal system and outside of it, the impact of step-parents, the role of step-parents, understanding what step-parents do, something that I'm super interested in, the role of parents, what it means, who's a parent, etc. And it also looks at things like cohabitation and marital relationships and the strength or weaknesses, perceived strength or weaknesses of those. So I'm really excited for it to arrive, once it arrives I'll tell you more, but for anyone who's interested I can't recommend it enough, it did come out in 2015 so I'm about six years late to the party, but once I've read it, I'll let you know what I think. Yeah, I'm sure it'll raise some really interesting points about this ongoing debate we're having about the policing of non-traditional families and whether or not that policing is grounded in myths or assumptions about how a child of a non-traditional family may turn out. I'm interested to hear what you have to say about it in a future episode. 
The next segment is, of course, our tweets of the week, tweets of the fortnight, whatever you'd like to call it. And we're doing a pupillage special in this episode because there were just so many tweets about pupillage that we thought were so moving or made us really think and gave us food for thought. So Maddie, do you want to start us off because we have a fair few tweets to get through? Yes, I want to start off with a tweet that I know Malbuka and I saw at the same time and I think is quite a good way to start this segment because I think Malbuka and I both have views about the pupillage process. And at the very beginning of this, I want to say that neither of us think that it is a perfect process. Neither of us think that there are not glaring inconsistencies and problems with the pupillage recruitment process in and of itself. Of course, huge congratulations to everyone who's cured pupillage. I'm sure you'll be fantastic barristers. But for those of you who didn't, this tweet I thought was very helpful. So it's from Lola, at Legally Lola, who we all know. Um, And she tweeted this, briefly breaking my hiatus for hashtag pupillage results day to say congratulations to everyone with pupillage offers today and commiserations to those who've been unsuccessful but also to address the horrible elephant in the room. And it goes on. It's easy for us that have been rejected and have gone on to get pupillage to say that it will happen for others because that has been our experience. Of course it will, for some perseverance is key, but for the majority, it won't be the case. And that's the unfortunate truth. So if you're feeling particularly downbeat, give yourself a break and then come back to reflect. If you decide that you don't want to apply next year, it's not a reflection on your worth or strength and the bar is far from the only worthwhile thing you can turn your hand to. So I think it's worth saying at this stage that we have to address the sheer volume of applications that have been made both this year and in previous years, but particularly this year, applications are up 50%. There were 3,301 candidates this year for 246 positions on the pupillage gateway. I know there are slightly more positions that aren't available on the gateway, but even those numbers are shocking. And I'm afraid that Lola's probably right when she says that the numbers don't necessarily fill everyone with confidence and don't necessarily mean that pupillage is going to be attainable for absolutely everyone. And that's for a number of reasons, quality being just one of them and probably not the most important one. But I think it's really important to consider, and Malvika and I have talked about this, that there are many other ways and many more successful and fun and potentially more fulfilling and interesting ways to exercise the things that you enjoy about the bar so things like advocacy can be done in lots of different areas things like supporting clients and working for people who want to build families and build connections you can do that in lots of ways there are other ways to use your law degree there are other ways to use research skills all kinds of things that mean that not being a barrister is not necessarily the blow that you think it is and definitely this year I'm staggered by the numbers that I'm seeing and by the amount of applications that have been made and the very low numbers that have been offered. And it is always going to be difficult to reconcile those two things. And as I say, I don't think the pupillage recruitment process is perfect by any stretch of the imagination. I'll come on to that on my second tweet, but it's worth remembering for those of you who are maybe feeling a bit downbeat or maybe feeling like things didn't go your way, that it's certainly not the end of your legal journey and it shouldn't be because there are so many good things that you can do we're both routinely against or talking to or in conversations with solicitors, legal trainees, legal executives, paralegals, all kinds of contributors to the legal system who are invaluable and who are just as valuable as barristers. And I know that's easy for me to say as a barrister, so I don't want to sound too patronising when I say that. Yeah, that relates to my first tweet, which picks up on the same point, and it's by Shelley at 42 Bedford Row at S. Glaster Young. This is I-N-S-A-N-E, she says, quoting a tweet which sets out the stats on pupillage applications this year. So 3,301 applicants, 
made 20,647 applications for 246 pupillages, which is a large increase in candidates over 1,000 since 2020, where 2,142 applicants submitted 15,632 applications for 237 pupillages. So those are the unfortunate stats. And Shelley goes on to say, I want the best for every aspiring barrister who happens across my path, and I try to provide what support and assistance I can, but we need to stop perpetuating the lie that you will make it if you only work hard and want it enough, because, and then she points to that quote tweet, it gets my goat so much, and it did on pupillage offer day, when so many barristers, so many pupils, so many people in the legal profession were saying, keep going, if you just work hard enough, you'll get there. That is not true. There is a huge dose of luck involved in getting pupillage. Of course, you have to be hardworking. Of course, you have to have the aptitude, but it is also a lot of luck. And there are also obvious structural barriers to many people from certain communities getting pupillage in the first place, which already puts them at a disadvantage. I don't need to re-rehearse all the things that everyone knows about the representation of BME pupils and particularly of Black pupils. There are structural barriers to Black people accessing pupillage and that is a problem. So the idea that you can say to them, for example, if you just work hard enough, you'll make it, I do think is patronising and untrue. It's the same for disabled candidates and other marginalised communities. So please stop saying keep going because it, it's, it's not the case that they will just get it if they work hard enough. And I think it feeds into this idea that everyone is on a level playing field and it's just about who puts in the most effort. We're not on the same playing field. And I also think that we have to consider the intersection between different groups. Obviously, we have to take an intersectional approach to everything we do. And I always say to people, don't use my face as a stat for diversity at the bar because yes, I'm brown, but I'm also middle-class and privately educated and went to an elite university and wasn't the first person in my family to go to university. So that is not an accurate reflection of the bar diversifying whatsoever. We need to start looking at the people who are falling through the gaps, the people who are at the intersections of the various minorities who are at their most disadvantaged and who we desperately need within the profession to represent the communities that we serve. So, if you tweeted something about how people should just keep going and they'll get there eventually, I may have muted you and I'm sorry, but don't tweet that again. I did, but it was in reference to reserve <laughs> offers. So that was my specific hang in there because my experience was that I waited for my reserve and then got my offer. So that's what I was referring to. If anyone comes for me, that's what I meant. And I completely echo everything that Malvika has just said. And I'm also acutely aware that both of us are having this conversation, having been to elite top universities and having very specific middle-class backgrounds. So I don't want to take it any further than that in terms of trying to understand how difficult it must be to come to the bar as someone who has not had that. And I think we're both very aware of that and would be very clear that we are not to be used in any reading of anything that we do as examples of perseverance or resilience. We have been hoisted by a system that supports people like us. So that's the reality. My second tweet relates to that as well. It is about black and brown representation at the bar and it's from the Black Barristers Network at BBN Tweets and it refers to some stats from Matthew Ryder which detail 
about some data done by the Bar Standards Board about how difficult it is to enter the legal profession and get pupillage. And that data shows that gender doesn't seem to be a significant barrier to obtaining pupillage, question mark about what's meant by gender, of course, in that sentence, but we'll take it as read. But ethnicity is, e.g. white graduates with two ones are twice as likely to obtain pupillage than BME graduates with the same grades. And what Black Barristers Network says about that is disheartening stats. It is also disappointing to see that whilst 53% of white BPTC grads obtaining a very competent grade and a first class degree had secured pupillage between 2013 and 17, only 27.3% of black grads in an equivalent position had secured pupillage. That is unacceptable <laughs> because you can't make the argument and the bar is very good at making an argument that it is a pure meritocracy and it's all about how good you are and it's just about being the best at the job and that's all we look for. That is patently not true on these stats because someone with exactly the same grades who had exactly the same results is getting almost 50% disparity in success for pupillage and that is unacceptable. And again, I don't take it any higher than that because I'm acutely aware of my position in saying this, but that is something that the bar really needs to look at, certainly something that the bar standards, if they've commissioned this data, needs to look really seriously at. And this is what I meant at the beginning when I said that I don't think the pupillage recruitment process is perfect. The, the pupillage recruitment process is done by barristers in chambers who have time to read the applications and do the interviews. They're not necessarily trained in recruitment, trained in human resources, trained in equality and diversity, although they should be. And so it's not necessarily a system that I think that young people who are talented can have a huge amount of faith in when it comes to proper understandings of intersectional fairness and equality. And that's the difficulty with the process for me. And I'm yet to see data and examples that disprove that for me. And my concern, as we said at the beginning, is that we're encouraging people maybe falsely and maybe without an understanding of exactly what the problems in the system are and saying, don't worry, you'll get there. If you work hard enough, you'll do it. The bar's not a meritocracy. It's never been a meritocracy. We know that for a fact. And it's certainly not a meritocracy at the recruitment level either, as much as it claims to be. So I just want, I, I can't really take it much further than that. But I think everyone listening to this should be aware that we absolutely, we at least at the bar are aware of it. We know it needs to change. We're doing as much as we can to change it. There are lots of networks and mentoring schemes and internship programs in place that try and encourage applicants from underrepresented communities to come to the bar and apply to the bar and get the requisite experience but that doesn't stop the actual problems with the recruitment process itself so we are alive to it and we'll keep doing as much as we can to raise awareness of it and try and speak to the bar standards board and the bar council about doing something because I know it's not acceptable and we know it has to stop. I also think in addressing the issue we've got to have a more nuanced approach to the experiences of people who fall within the BME category because we're not a monolithic group. The experiences of black people are not the same as the experiences of Asian people like me and it is important to draw that distinction because for example, the BSB 2020 diversity report says that their findings found that there's a slightly greater proportion of Asian and Asian British practitioners at the bar compared to the proportion of Asian and Asian British individuals in the UK working age population. And the same can be said for mixed and multiple ethnic backgrounds. However, by contrast, there's a slightly smaller proportion of those from black and black British backgrounds and a greater relative underrepresentation from those from other ethnic groups. So I think it it is important to take a more sophisticated approach to the groups that form part of the BME category because I do think that white people tend to lump us all into one 
Yes, I don't think the BAME label is helpful, especially in this context when we're talking about numbers of people who are able to achieve something. It's kind of a cop out to put everyone who's not white in the same group because it inflates the numbers to a, to a point that's not correct. So we also need to be aware of the language that we're using. I think the stats quoted in the second tweet from Black Barristers Network relates specifically to black people and are very concerning. And my second tweet also follows the same theme. I don't know if we just had all the same ideas about the sort of tweets that we were reading, but it's from uh, Makisa Baptiste, who has just got pupillage at Ropewalk. Congratulations. But before she got pupillage, she tweeted this, and it just is a prime example of that disconnect you spoke about a moment ago about recruitment teams in chambers and the candidates that they are screening and interviewing. She writes, we hate to see it. I've been asked about racism this year during pupillage interviews with no black people on the panel. Felt very uncomfortable being judged by my answers on a topic that affects me greatly with no one that looks like me judging. That topic being, and she quote tweeted Nadine White, a panel about racism in Britain with no black people in 2021. Extraordinary. I just, I, I don't even know which pupillage recruitment or white pupillage recruitment panel thought that it would be appropriate to quiz a black pupillage candidate on racism as if it's something that's a fun essay topic for debate as opposed to their lived experience. It's just such a glaring example of how detached pupillage committees that are made up primarily of white people in primarily white chambers just don't understand the lived realities of the people who are applying to them and that's why it's so important that we recruit people from different communities because otherwise we're just going to have the same cycle of pupillage interview panels who just recruit in their own image and then we end up with experiences like this it's just not appropriate at all is it absolutely tone deaf to the point of stupidity i think how that got past anyone with half a brain, I've got no idea, but it's unacceptable. As you say, rightly at the beginning, you know, it's not a debate topic. It's not a fun thing to exercise your advocacy skills. It's people's real lives. And how tone deaf can you be to think that that's something that they want to practice their advocacy about? Unacceptable. I'm so sorry, Makisa. And my final tweet of the week because I thought it might give everyone a sense of perspective. I know that many disappointed pupillage candidates will be feeling like it's the end of the world right now. And I know exactly how you feel to be wrapped up in the pupillage madness and to feel like you can't process anything outside that. So I thought that this tweet brought things home slightly. And it's from at A2J Rebecca. Today is a day for pupillage results and local election results. But my personal celebration for today is the fact that I did not end up in A&E post-chemo thanks to extra strong anti-sickness medication. Hooray for science. So we're really happy for you too, Rebecca, and I hope that that reminds everyone that this really is not a big deal in the grand scheme of things. Applying for this one very specific job in this one very specific profession, a job that Maddie and I moan about constantly, is not the end of the world and you will make it through. Yeah, that's what I say to my friends when they when they have dejections and rejections in the pupillage process. You know, you are going to be so much more and experience so much more than this decision. And you are so much bigger and more talented than this decision. So please don't feel like any rejection from an institution that's got its own very significant flaws 
defines you in any way if you're talented enough to make the application you're talented enough to do anything else that you want to do and I wish you all the best of luck with it and please don't get disheartened from this perspective and that's it for episode five our bumper pupillage edition so please do join us in a fortnight for episode six we'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode our twitter handles will be in the show notes as per usual do tweet us any thoughts for the next episode but until then bye 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 guys